Well, we continue on in our series through the book of Hebrews, and tonight, as you guys know from last week, we actually have a little bit of a mini-series within the series as we walk through Hebrews chapter 11. The first three verses of chapter 11 talk about the nature of faith. So the whole chapter is about faith, and the first three verses talk about the nature of faith. What is faith? It's being sure of what we hope for and confident in the things that we don't see. And so now, Starting in verse 4, we're going to go through a whole bunch of Old Testament heroes. Now, it's really important as we walk through this, oftentimes uh, when we hear about these heroes from their Genesis account and throughout the rest of the Bible, it doesn't talk about them as being like great men of faith. But the author of Hebrews is telling us that like these guys, they were righteous because of their faith. And so, Uh, We're going to walk through this tonight, and we're going to get some heroes. It's good to have heroes if they're the right kinds, and there's a whole bunch of them here in the Old Testament. And so Hebrews chapter 13 tells us in verse 7 that we are to imitate the leader's faith. And so tonight we're going to see again that all of Hebrews is pointing to the same thing, that you and I would have more faith in Jesus, that that we would be strengthened in our faith in Jesus. And you've got to see what it looks like, because you know as well as I do, all the time, you hear me say it, you hear others, go make disciples. Be a disciple, go make disciples. What does that look like? Like, What does it look like to have um, the kind of faith that like, the Bible talks about? And so what's awesome about tonight is we're not just going to talk about faith in general, and we're not just going to talk about uh, these three separate accounts uh, of people having faith, but we're going to see how they had faith in unique, specifically unique instances. Uh, that I think you and I face on a regular basis. Um, and so that's going to be a, an exciting deal. I remember when we were in Utah, um, when we were in Utah, it just kicked me off, didn't it? Must have kicked me off a while ago. And we got to know about Mormonism. Uh, one of the weirdest things early on for us was the LDS faith, um, they will, those in the faith will characterize themselves by either being active or inactive. And so you talk to someone, and very quickly, like the first thing you'll hear um, more times than not is whether they are active LDS or inactive. And I just thought, gosh, what a weird thing to like identify yourself as. We're either active in the church or we're not. Uh, but your name's still in the record book. And so I wonder in the Christian faith what that would look like uh, if God said, hey, who's active and who's not? Because you'd assume we're all active in the faith. A big difference between having faith and walking by faith. So let's jump in tonight as we see that Jesus is worthy of our faith. All right, Hebrews chapter 11, starting in verse 4. We're going to talk about Abel. The author says, Now by faith Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended, remember commended means approved, commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. Scary to think that he might not accept our gifts. You'd you'd assume he's going to accept every gift, but he only accepted this one by faith. And through his faith, this is Abel, though he died, he still speaks. All right, let's stop there. The first thing we see is Abel's faith. And the specific instance is in gift giving. It's in sacrifice and giving gifts to God. So let's jump into 
Abel's story. How many of you guys remember the story of Abel? In Genesis chapter 4, we have uh, our story of Cain and Abel. And, and so here's the gist of it. Adam and Eve, they're there. They start to have kids. And one or two of those kids are Cain and Abel. So Cain, he is, he, he's a farmer. He just has crops and he grows these crops. And then Abel, he's a rancher. He has, uh, he has livestock, grows them up. Some point in their lives, they decide um, to offer some sacrifices to God. And Cable, excuse me, Cable, nice. See, this is efficiency. Don't say both the names, just combine them. So Cain, he offers some grain and whatnot. We don't know what it was, like if it was nasty crops, if it was the best of the best. It just says he, he offered it, and it was rejected by God. Abel, on the other hand, he had uh, his firstborn, and he offered it to God, and God accepted it. And so then in Genesis 4, it says that Abel, um, you know, man, he's doing things great, it's wonderful, he's good with God, but Cain now is, is sad, and God comes to Cain and says, like, why are you downtrodden? What's going on? Of course, Cain's just ticked off. Like, how could you not accept my sacrifice? And so God says something really interesting to him. He says to him in, in chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, he says that, be careful, Cain, because sin is crouching, waiting for you, but you must master it. You must rule over it. And then from there, we see Cain goes out to the field, has a conversation with his brother. Bam, kills Abel. And Abel, now his blood in the ground, God comes to Cain. Cain's like, oh, I'm just going to go do my own thing. There's not that many people on earth. You know, it's going to be found out what happened. And God says, hey, Cain, what happened to your brother? Cain's like, I don't know. He's not my I'm not his keeper, I'm not my brother's keeper. But then he gets all heated, and God says, your brother's blood cries out from the ground. And then he says, go, get out of here. He curses him. And Cain's like, this is going to be a horrible life, and he runs away. And we're going to talk about what happens after that. But why do you think Abel's sacrifice was more acceptable the word acceptable here in the Greek, it, it means that it was more fitting as to what God was looking for. So when it says that it was accepted by God, it means, you know what? God's like, this is what I'm looking for. That, not so much. Why in the world was it more acceptable? Now, scholars have argued why. Some say, well, it, maybe it was a tithe kind of issue. Um, but we, at that point in Genesis, we don't really see much about tithes. Um, some say, well, uh, it was more acceptable because um, he gave an animal and a blood sacrifice, and it cost more. It was his firstborn, so it was a first fruits kind of thing. Again, it's hard to tell, whereas it was just grain. Like, we, we don't know all those for sure things. But it's obvious that it's acceptable because it was offered in faith. First John chapter 3, verse 12, John says that Cain was evil, as were his deeds. Like John says, man, and he wasn't just talking about murder. He said that his sacrifice was nasty. So God clearly sees a heart difference between Cain and Abel. Clearly sees some kind of heart issue. I think, it's, I, think it's, I think it's clear that 
Cain and Abel both doing the exact same thing, one of them by faith, one of them in a religious act, for whatever reason, didn't have faith, like didn't trust in God as he was doing this. And that's scary because that shows you and I can do all the things that we think Christians should do. We could do all the things that we believe God's asking us to do. We could do all the things that like we should do and, and do it in such a way that only God, not even our friends, not even our family, not even your pastor, nobody can see that you're doing it in the wrong way. But God looks at it and says, you know what? You might as well not even do it if you don't do it with faith. It's like, oh man. Stinks. See, the difference between us and Cain, in a lot of ways, is that we haven't been called out for our faithlessness. He did. And like, what's stopping you and I from just doing all of the things we do? And I'm not saying that we're all doing them without faith, but I think it's a, it's a good heart question. What's stopping us? Like, what's going to stop us in our tracks and say, you know what? Maybe we need to come to terms with the fact that we're not experiencing God's power, his presence. We're not experiencing the faith because we're not really actually walking by faith. Hopefully tonight. Could be that. I mean, what do you, what do, you do? What do you do? What do I do by faith? I mean, look at your life. Like anything. Like if you took the faith out of your life, would this week have changed at all? Do you, I mean, when you, when you come here on Sundays or, or Wednesday nights, do you come here because, like, you have faith, like, man, you know what, this is a sacrifice, and, and I believe God's going to do something, or do you come because it's a routine? And we do things for a lot of reasons. Like, do we have faith that God's going to do something bigger? And when was the last time we did something in such a way that, like, it costs us I remember when I first started tithing to God. Oh, man, I'd pray over that money. I'd think about everything I was losing. I was thinking about how unnatural it felt, thinking about the bills that had to be paid, and coming to, like, the face, like, I, I, I can give it to God or I can keep it for myself. I'm choosing faith. I'm choosing to be obedient. I'm going to give this to God. Now, every few months, Tara, have you sent a check in to the church? Okay, I just want to make sure we're still doing that. See how quickly that can turn? Like, when was the last time we did these things when it actually costs us something? When was the last time you served and it cost you something? Personally, I know, and, and for years I couldn't pinpoint it, but I, I know now that the times I get most frustrated as a pastor is when I know, like, inherently, I know I'm doing a lot of things I should be, maybe doing exactly what God's called me to, but I'm not, at the end of the day, I know I'm, I didn't do anything today with like faith. Like I didn't step out in faith. That, you know, that's kind of crazy to think that you could hire me, like you could pay me to be your pastor, to, to be here and to serve and to make decisions. Like I could do that and be completely faithless. Like that's crazy to think. And if I ever feel like it's creeping into that mode, like I, my soul, something in me is like, I can tell. Like, it's, just, it's not just about, you know, counseling and disciple making and crossing. Like, am I, am I actually walking by faith? Most of us, when we have the opportunity to walk by faith, even when we're serving God, like we avoid it like the plague. Like, uh, you know, 
I'll serve God, I'll, I'll give to God, I'll offer my sacrifices until it becomes a sacrifice. And then our prayer life turns to God, please don't make me actually walk by faith and please don't make me actually sacrifice when I sacrifice. And we come into good counseling about how maybe God might be asking us to sacrifice right now, but like I'm, I'm comfortable serving him in the way that I'm used to and I'm comfortable coming to these things and I'm comfortable doing these things. Like where is the faith? And faith can be had in all these things because I think it's coming, uh, it's walking through whatever, whatever we're doing. Uh, when you come up to the place where you're unsure, where you're scared, where you're uncomfortable, it's still choosing to do what God asks regardless of how the circumstances around you dictate. And so one way you say, well, how do we actually walk by faith then? Because it, it's like, well, do I need to stop coming to Sunday worship until I desire to again? Or what, like, well, how do I walk by faith doing that? I think one thing is just pulling back and like remembering, like, what are we doing and why are we doing? Like, do I believe? I believe this morning I'm going to do this, even though I could spend my time in other ways. But like, I believe God exists and he is worthy to be praised and I'm going to do it like I'm choosing. You got to just remind yourself, Okay. This is what I'm doing, and I'm choosing to do this in faith. I'm trusting God. Another way is those exact same things we could be doing. Like, there's always further steps of faith in it. So you don't just come to church. Maybe you've been coming to a worship service for years. Now, maybe, you invite somebody. You say, well, I'm just not that much of an inviter. But, like, you invite someone that you're uncomfortable inviting. That, like, when they find out that, like, you belong to a church, like, it's going to be awkward and weird, maybe, between you. Like, you're taking a risk. You're sacrificing a relationship a little bit. They're going to see a part of you that you maybe hid from them. It means when you go to work, you don't just go to work and look at it as provision. It means you go to work and you think, how can I share my faith? How can I get uncomfortable for the sake of the gospel? It means that when you have retirement plans, that you don't just go through them the way you think you should go through them, but you say, God, maybe you want me to live differently during this time. Maybe it's not what we planned at all. Maybe this is actually a 180 from how we imagined this would be. Like, There's nothing you're going through right now that can't be gone through with faith. And there's nothing you're going through right now that can't be gone through religiously in a way that God hates. It's not just about what we do, it's about how we go through it. And so there's, there's part of this verse that, that is kind of complicated because it says, and through his faith, this is Abel, though he died, he still speaks. How in the world does Abel still speak? His blood, God says, his blood is crying out from the ground. Well, it speaks centuries later in Scripture to us. His faith speaks to us, but it speaks that faith requires sacrifice and that faith is going to cost you something and that faith isn't often met with friendly people around you saying, you're doing amazing stuff. Yep, keep going. But people who see the way you live and see what your relationship with God is like, and it actually makes them hate you more. And it speaks from the ground that God takes notice. We like to view ourselves as able, but really we're all Cain's, aren't we? We're Cain's. 
We're Cain's who, who, who have defied God and who have done things in ways that we know he hates. And the beautiful thing is Hebrews tells us in Hebrews chapter 12 that Jesus' blood speaks a better word than Abel's blood. Abel's blood came from a man who had faith. Jesus' blood comes from someone who gives all men faith. Two completely different sacrifices. One because of faith, one to initiate faith because Jesus is worthy of faith. When you give of yourself emotionally, mentally, when you give money, when you give time, when you give anything, like, what are you doing by faith? And what are you doing because it's routine, because you're used to it, because you fill in the blank? Verse 5. The author's walking through, remember verse 3 was about creation, and now he's just walking through the Old Testament. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he, he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now, before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. You see that same word over and over, commended, 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 faith, faith, faith. Now, it's important, again, to see in Genesis, it doesn't talk about their faith much talk about how they walked with God, but the author of Hebrews is saying, like, I want, I told you what the nature of faith is, now I'm going to filter through the Old Testament, and I'm going to tell you what it actually looks like to have this kind of faith. So the next thing we see is Enoch's faith, breaking the cycle, breaking the cycle. So very little is written about Enoch. In Genesis chapter 5, verses 21 through 24, we see the most. But essentially, here's the story on Enoch. Cain, he goes off into la-la land, um, ticked off at God, and he has some kids. One of them, Enoch. And, and Enoch, he walked with God, it says. But it says he was taken up, that he did not taste death. This is... I, I don't know, when I first started learning about the Bible, I remember this being just one of those weird characters in the Old Testament. Like, what was up with Enoch? I'm, I'm going to, the story goes a little deeper. But two guys in the Old Testament were taken up, translation means literally carried away, so that they didn't die an ordinary death like you and I, but they were taken up. One was Enoch, do you guys remember the second one? Elijah, Okay. Now, Elijah's got at least a cool story because then, uh, you know, Jesus says, and Jewish tradition was that Elijah would come back down from heaven and that he would, um, he would be preaching, essentially, at a, a repentance. And so when John the Baptist comes along, uh, and they're like, who is this? You know, we're trying to figure it out. Jesus tells us in Matthew that John the Baptist, this is the spirit of Elijah, okay? I was like, okay, at least as crazy as it sounds, Elijah kind of has a story that finishes. Then you got this Enoch guy. It's like, what's his story? He just got zapped up to heaven. Didn't die like the rest of us? Like, why? Why? But, but I, I, you think about it, and you think about being Enoch. Enoch is <laughs> Cain's son, and so he, as, as we see from everyone prior to Noah, like just filled with evil, evil all around them. Enoch had a faith, and it shined because it's just evil, evil, evil to the point of Noah now coming after this and the flood, wiping them all away. You guys know the story, but you've got to picture yourself as Enoch. His dad is literally, you think you got a jacked up family. His dad is like the worst person on earth. Picture, not that many people around, like, oh, 
Who's got the worst reputation here? It's my dad. Wasn't encouraged as a kid. Like, what is he telling his friends in Sunday school? Like, you know, I'm just, I just don't have an atmosphere at home conducive to faith. My dad kills people with faith. So he knows his uncle, Abel, died because of his faith. So you wonder why in the world, so God gives us the story of Abel, he has faith, and then the same family has the complete opposite of faith, and in that family you would think it would just multiply evil, 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 right? Cain's just going to have evil kids, and God in his awesomeness says, not only is his kid going to have an amazing faith, it's going to be life-giving, he's not going to die. His story is the exact opposite of Abel's, his uncle. Instead of faith that leads to death, faith that leads to life. Both of them are beautiful in that context. So Enoch's got to break the cycle because he doesn't have a super supportive family. There's people in here, like you know, maybe your mom or dad, they just, they just don't care about Christianity or they're just not people of faith. Maybe it's your siblings, coworkers, friends, family, whatever it might be. You know what it's like to be around people who are not very supportive of you following Jesus. I remember the day I told my dad, <laughs> who, who isn't a believer, my mom is, but I remember the day I told my dad, hey, uh, I, uh, you know, I was just finishing firefighter school, and they were excited for me to be a firefighter. I just passed EMT, it's certified in the state of Kansas. Like, I'd done what I needed to do. Now I can be a firefighter. And I remember calling him up and saying, yeah, I think I'm going to continue school for ministry. And he was at work uh, at the electrical engineering department at K-State. And uh, I remember on the other end, he just went, <sighs> and then he said something that was a downer. I don't remember even what he said. But I remember just thinking, like, this is so awkward. Like, there, there just isn't much support there. It was weird for him, you know? Made sense. I grew up in that home, and we didn't talk about faith at all. But I grew up with rational parents. And, and rationale and reason are not opposite of faith, okay? We learned this last week. It's actually being able to look at everything and the evidence that we have and choosing them. We believe there's more in the way of God and his plan and, and his existence than there is elsewhere. Like, we're going to choose that. Like, that's, that's faith. But I grew up in a family that was just very, like, we're going we're gonna to weigh the pros and cons. My dad would often, uh, he would have this, this checkered paper um, this yellow paper, I remember he just, he always had this. And at night, he would watch TV and he would just sit cross-legged and he would write out plans for um, just, you know, uh, different projects around the home and how much it would cost and just different, like that was what he did for fun at night. Like he would just write and make plans and its pros and its cons and like just all of life's decisions were on the big board, so to speak. And I just, like there, there wasn't room for faith in that. I remember when we were in Virginia and my parents came out to visit and he was okay with me going to Virginia and whatnot. Tara and I were married. Like he was, eh, okay, I'll deal with my son's faith for a little bit. Just ignore it. We don't have to talk about it until he asked me. Of course, Tara and I had been married a couple years by this point. In Virginia, we told him we're going to Utah. We're going to move there to plant a church. Now, if you're nominal in Christianity, you're still thinking Utah is a weird place. But like for my dad, he's thinking, okay, now you're part of a cult. He's thinking, I'm probably going to go out there and be a part of whatever's happening out there. But I remember he got ticked. We were driving down the road, and he asked me, um, like, solid questions about how I was going to provide for my family. Like, you got a job out there? No. 
A place to live? No. Prospects? You know, 9,000 people in the middle of the desert, not much going on. And I remember he just got ticked off because he thought I was a horrible husband. He asked us, how are you going to provide for your wife? He said, Ryan, you don't understand. You've got to be a grown-up now. You've got to be responsible. Do you want to know what it looks like for someone to think that what we believe is foolishness? The cross is foolishness. So I was trying to explain, like, rationally, faith and God's provision, and it just did not make sense. He just thought I was an idiot. Now, as he saw God's movement in our lives after that, I think it built a little confidence in him. But, man, that made me hurt because it's like, I know as a man, like, I'm struggling with how am I going to provide. But I just know he said go, and, and, and we're just going to go. He just, like, we're just going to go. Like, we got to break the cycle of whoever's around us who doesn't have the faith that we have. This isn't a self-righteous, I'll go, we've got to always stay away from them. The truth is, you're going to have to have faith around people who don't have faith. Well, I'm just, I just hate my job because no one there believes what I believe and they cuss and they do bad things. You're going to have to have faith that's audacious around people who think it's stupid. Well, you just don't understand. It's so hard to go home for the holidays because my family doesn't believe and it's just like they discredit everything that I'm doing here because they don't understand my involvement with the church. You're going to have to have faith amongst people who don't care about your faith. Nobody has a crazier story than Enoch. Think about it as he's getting zapped up to heaven thinking, this is gone, this is nuts. But Enoch, I love this, he didn't, he, his faith wasn't given to him because he's awesome. It wasn't given to him because God says, you know, I feel bad for you. Your dad's kind of a bad dude and I just don't know what to do with him, so I'm going to somehow bless you. Like, no, it says he, he had faith because he walked with God. He walked with God. Like your faith grows and it's strengthened when you spend time in the invisible, right? Because the invisible points to the invisible, but the more that you immerse yourself with those who care about the things of this world, the more they're going to point you to the things of the world. And so it will be a battle. That's why it does feel like turmoil where you somehow, you got to have faith amongst people. Like it's not going to get easy. I think sometimes that just needs to be said. It's probably not going to get easier. They're going to point to the things they see. And you're going to want to point to the things you don't see. But when you walk with the things you don't see... It makes you want to continue to walk with the things you don't see. So the key is spending time in the presence of God to have faith strengthened because our current, ex our current experience is going to dictate whether we want to have faith, whether we're going to walk in faith, right? Like in this room, okay? So if you're not currently experiencing the presence of power of God, what when you start dating someone who's a non-believer and, and, and they want to do things physically that you know you shouldn't be doing prior to marriage, what's going to stop you from denying the tangible, short-term pleasure to choose an everlasting reward that you can't see? Unless you have somehow experienced that that which you can't see is better than what you currently have on the table. Like, what is going to give you, <laughs> well, what's going to give you the desire to say, I'm going to trust in, in an eternal hope, even though right now, like, I'm angry and I've had a bad day and I just want to complain and there's going to be some temporary relief and pleasure if I just complain. I know I shouldn't complain. I know that I deal with this all the time, but I just want to complain right now. 
when it's tempting to gossip, to slander, because we like it just a little bit right now. The only thing that's going to make you want to walk for something that you can't see is if you're spending time with something you can't see. The presence of God compels and propels faith. And it doesn't come any other way. What are you doing? What, like, what does it look like for you right now? Are you a cycle breaker? Is there anything showing the world, is there any evidence right now that your faith is somehow different than those around you? Your parents' faith? Like, does, Are you just living out your faith the same way they lived out their faith? That could be a really good thing. Could be a not so good thing. Like, are you, are you being dragged down by non-believers around you, or are you showing the power of God by walking by faith? You can tell them, well, I'm, I'm just a Christian. I go to church and whatnot. No, they need to see the power of God if they're ever going to have faith. Just like you need to see the power of God if you're going to have faith. Got to be a cycle breaker. Then there's kind of a stop in the action in terms of the Old Testament stories. And you see this in Hebrews 11, verse 6. This is the famous verse. Many of you know it by heart. The author says, and without faith, it is impossible to please God excuse me, to please him, which is God. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Third thing we see is that faith believes Jesus is better. Jesus is better. So keep in mind that this verse isn't just, uh, it's, it's not just in a vacuum by itself. But the context of this is talking about Enoch's faith in an evil world. Like it's shown in an evil world. So picture the author writing this and he's about to list off and he knows he's going to list off all of these Old Testament saints, these heroes of faith. And, and so he's writing about the creation. Okay, creation in verse 3. And he's writing about Abel, okay, Abel's faith, and then Enoch's faith, and there's hardly anything in Scripture about Enoch, but he's writing about his faith, and then he just stops, and instead of jumping into Noah and Abraham and everything else, he, he just stops, and he's just like, like, I, in the, like right now in this, like even me talking and writing about Enoch, I've got I've to put another one-liner in there, that like it's, it's impossible, it's impossible to please God without faith. In his mind, he's thinking about how evil the people were that Enoch was around, and how against the grain he was living. And just like, man, this is what matters. Like, this is impossible. You can offer like Abel. You can offer like Cain. But it is impossible. Like, you've got to do everything with faith. So I just got to put this in there. Like, right now. So why does faith please God? Because it demands. It demands that we recognize him. It demands that we recognize God as God. Like, my possessions aren't God, my, my, my friends aren't God, my dreams and my goals, like, they're not God. God is God. So faith demands, you can have faith in a lot of things, but faith in Jesus demands that we recognize God is God. And not only that, but that he rewards those who seek him. The word reward here in the Greek is only used here. And it kind of makes us uncomfortable to an extent, doesn't it, when we think, okay, so we have faith because why? Well, because we believe God exists and because we believe there's a reward. Don't want any kind of unhealthy motivations. But the reward is Jesus. It's eternal life. There's nothing unhealthy about that. 
So faith pleases God because it demands us to come face to face with that there is a God and it demands us to believe that Jesus is better, that the reward is better than what is currently offered. Like we have to, like to have faith, we have to recognize that. And God says, that's what I want. That's what I want. Remember, this is coming in the context of chapter 10, verse 34, where the author is reminding the Hebrew people who are losing their faith a little bit. He's saying, you remember the faith you had that, that made you get pillaged, and yet you realized you had a reward that was not of this world, and you were okay with losing your, your, your property. Your property was plundered. You were dragged out in the streets. You were embarrassed, like you were ridiculed. You were persecuted. You were beaten, thrown in jail. You hung out with those who were beaten, thrown in jail. Like You remember that kind of faith? You guys believe that Jesus was better. You remember that? We struggle with faith because not, not just, well, is God there? Like, okay, we would all say, yeah, I believe God's there. Is his reward good? Yeah, I believe his reward is good. We struggle with faith because it demands we come face to face with our idols and our fears. It demands that we come face to face with the things that grip our heart. And we're scared because if those things aren't in line with God, if they are not God, they're going to have to be dealt with. Faith brings all idolatry to the forefront. And that's scary. It's incredibly scary. And as you know, we're a group of people that are constantly living among things that are not only clamoring for our attention, but, but they're shortchanging us in what they have to offer. And so we as Christians are a group of people saying like, okay, we see what's in front of us, but we understand there's got to be something more to life. There's got to be something better. Like there's got to, there's got to be something better than this. We all loved, man, we loved the Royals and the postseason. This is fun. This is exciting. We shared all the stories. We watched the 27-minute videos on YouTube. Like, I know we just watched the playoffs, but we watched a collage of it all four times in a row as well. Like, we, we were excited about this, and you can't tell me that after it was over and, and then the parade was over that, like, oh, man, it started to just, it started to fade. And even right now, it's like, it's not nearly as good today as it was three weeks ago, two weeks ago. And you knew this was how it was going to be from the very beginning, but you still enjoyed and you put your hope in it. You're like, this is something awesome and fun. And that's what it's like every time we are confronted with our idols and as well, I'm going to follow Jesus no matter what. I'm going to have to choose that he is better, that he is worthy no matter what. Like all of those other things start to show you how they're shortchanging you. And you start to see their glory dim a little bit. And the only thing that stands is the glory of God, and that makes you want to keep on walking. Keep on walking. It's like watching the old Price is Right. You ever watch that show growing up? All throughout the show, the whole premise is that they have something in front of them, that they can spin a wheel, they can do something, and like there's something always behind a curtain. 
And half the time, the people in the audience know what's behind the curtain as much as they know what is in front of them. But the people have to choose, like, do you believe that what's behind the curtain, what is not seen, do you believe that it's better than what you currently have? And the struggle is palpable. It's real. And every day we're faced with the same thing. But we get a taste what's behind the curtain and know that it's better. Even though we don't get it in its fullness until he comes back and we're face to face, we get enough of it. Now, let me ask you, I mean, be honest. Just, just be honest with your heart right now. Do you on a regular basis, do you taste that Jesus is better enough to want to choose him over every other thing that's offered? You can hear me talk about him being better. Like, do you sit in the presence of God and, and like, you, you taste that he is better? Don't take my word for it. You raise your kids and you hope they're going to have faith. But you know like you can't baby them and you can't, you can't be there when they go off to college and they have to choose. All of these things now are pushed up against them in, in ways that they've never quite had them as, as influencers before. Maybe the same things, but you were there to kind of protect a little bit. And now you know like they're going to have to have tasted that Jesus is good. Because right now, everything's pointing to them grabbing on to what's around them. Do you taste that he's good? Because he is sweeter. Last but not least, we turn to Noah. Verse 7, by faith, Noah being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Last but not least, we see Noah's faith is counter-cultural. So Abel had faith when, when he's giving sacrifices and gifts to God. And, and then Enoch, he had faith even though everyone around him didn't. And now Noah, he's got a faith that is counter-cultural. He's going against the grain. How many of y'all, let's be honest now, you saw the, the Noah movie. I don't even know what it was called. It might have just been called Noah. I don't remember. came out six months ago. It was a goofy movie. One of those movies that you think is going to be like biblical and then you go see and it's like not anywhere close and it just makes you angry. I, it, here's what it did though. I did see it. And it did show you probably a fairly accurate representation and everything that it wasn't accurate in. It did show you an accurate representation of how against the grain it was for Noah to be building an ark when everyone else is thinking, you're an idiot. Why would you do that? It was countercultural. I mean, what if you were in Noah's position? What if God told you about something? He tells you about something that no one else can see and nobody else knows about. What if he told you of something that nobody else sees and nobody else knows about? Okay, that by itself would be like, okay, now i got a secret and this is weird, but I'll just keep it to myself. It'll be, it'll be all right. All throughout scripture, God does this. He tells people things that he's not letting everyone else into. And then what if he gave you instructions? 
So like, you can't just sit on this knowledge. You've got to actually walk. Like he's saying, you're going to do something, and very quickly, the people around you are going to think you're stupid. They're going to make fun of you. They're going to hate you. It's gonna, like, and this isn't like, okay, 30 minutes of, of doing something for God, and I can go back and just pretend like it never happened. No, like day after day, you're going to have to build something, and it's going to get so big that everybody, people are going to come from all over the place. They're going to see it. Like, there's no way you can hide these instructions. You have to come face to face with ridicule because of what I'm telling you. And, and then, okay, so if that's crazy enough, he tells you something, uh, and, then, and then he makes you act on it. What if, <laughs> what if the very nature of what you're doing is condemning those around you? It said that Noah was a preacher of righteousness. Like, those who saw him and saw what he was building, and they're thinking he's stupid, as the water rises, and they start to think and put two and two together. Oh, my gosh, that maniac was right, and I'm going to die. So like you're you're not you're not just doing this and your family's going to be saved, but like this is like this in some ways is at the expense of y'all dying and being condemned. You can picture how many times people of faith have done something in faith as people have mocked them and they don't even realize like you know what what you're mocking me is the only thing that's going to bridge the gap between you and God through Christ Jesus. It's faith. And Noah's faith, it didn't come because, again, he was awesome, but it came because he feared God. He feared disobedience more than he cared about what those around him were actually saying. You see, when we have people like this, when we have people who, who, who walk by faith in this way, like, we, we make fun of them. I mean, think about those who, in our culture, they, they, they feel like, man, God is telling me something. Like, and, and obviously, use discernment. We're not talking about weird prophetic stuff that um like we're, we're talking about it could be legit but man you're standing on your own right here oh i think god's gonna save the city he's gonna do something yeah i mean that's good we applaud that but like man god's gonna build a missionary training center here like any we're gonna send people okay now now you're being a little more specific that's i don't know if that's gonna really happen here I remember one old boy when I was in Utah, he came in, and unfortunately, this was something we experienced on a regular basis. He came in one Sunday, and um, I met him at the door. He came in, participated in worship, and I remember as I was preaching, and I looked at him, and just like in his eyes, he was glossed over. He was just kind of hollow, and I'm, oh gosh, like you could, as a preacher, like you make eye contact with people, and you start to see like some of them, like they're here, but they're not really here. Um... And once in a while, it just really stands out. And I remember he, he was in that boat. And afterwards, he didn't go talk to anybody else, um, but he came straight for me. And I was like, oh, no. And, um, and so I was talking to him, and he didn't, he didn't care um, about the church or what was going on. He didn't care about getting to know anyone, but he just, he just told me immediately. Now, keep in mind, we're in Utah, and so tablets and golden vision, all that. I mean, they're like, this, it's part of this thing out there. And he comes up to me and says, Pastor, I, I want to take you to the mountains. We had mountains everywhere around price. I want to take you up to the mountains because God has given me a revelation and he's shown me these tablets, these golden tablets. And then he mentioned something about some foreign language, things were written on them, prophecies and different things. But he said, and like he was sold on them. He was getting anxious and, and just tense, just talking to me about this. And he wanted me to see it so bad. He started talking to me about end times and all kinds of stuff. And um, like I felt bad for him, honestly. But I remember I was like, well, before we go up there, let's have coffee first. He didn't, he didn't want to have coffee with me. 
when I didn't jump and bite on what he was trying to sell, he took off and I never saw him again. But that's what we think of when we think of people who are like, they're going to step out in faith, right? But like every visionary out there who believes God's going to do what only God can do, things that are going to glorify God, not glorify me, not glorify the church, like just only, they're going to bring glory to God. Every visionary has to look and take a chance of being a little bit crazy before it happens, right? Like it's got to happen. I don't agree with everything that, that Jerry Falwell has done politically and some of his statements and things in life. Like, I, I don't, but like, man, I went to Liberty University and as I started to, to look into like the background here and I hear about this guy who comes to Lynchburg and he's going door to door in the 50s and the 60s and the 70s and he's telling people that like God's gonna save the city. God's gonna do something amazing. Like we're gonna send missionaries out. We're gonna, like, man, and he's just casting this vision and it's like, it would've been so easy to be like, this guy is just a crazy Appalachian mountains, just crazy man until all of a sudden a church of a few turns into a church of 25,000 and they're sending missionaries all over the country and a university comes up out of that that is now the largest Christian university in the world the largest church planning missionary missionary sending university in the world and you can make fun of him and some of the things he said but like when you go there and you see what's happening and you gather with the largest gathering of young Christian people they gather on a regular basis in the nation on a regular basis, they gather every Monday, Wednesday, 10,000 strong, and they're sitting there just singing to the glory of God in this auditorium. And you're just looking around saying, who could have ever dreamed this? And you start to find out one old boy did. And it actually came true. He didn't live to see part of it. Matter of fact, when he died, it exploded in ways that it never did before. In a lot of ways, it almost ended in 1993. They went bankrupt and it was about to end. Like, do you think that God can use you in a way so powerful that the, the nations are changed? I don't want you to hear this and think, man, this is about me. But I want you to believe that he wants to use you for his kingdom purposes in a powerful way. And I'll be honest, and I, I, I used to love preaching like this because it gets everyone excited, especially when there's young folks. This really, you know, gets them going. But I, I, it, it makes me anxious now when I preach stuff like this because I know um, enough to know that oftentimes what really motivates and gets people excited is the opportunity for change, adventure, excitement like I could go overseas maybe like God could use me in a powerful way and it sounds pure on the outside but deep down they're just excited because they're like oh finally God's got a plan that's better than what I thought but it's going to be awesome and like they start to get motivated by the wrong things sometimes the biggest step of faith you can take is, is to stay right where you are sometimes the biggest step of faith you can take makes you look stupid even in Christian circles my old professor I remember him telling me about his pastor growing up, and his pastor was in West Virginia, way in, West, in eastern, eastern West Virginia, and he said that the county, this was back in the 70s, the county that this guy was in, he pastored, it only had like 400 people in the whole county. Like it was in the mountains. But he said the church that he pastored blew up. He said there's over 800 people at this church. Like that, 800 people in a church where there's only 400 in the county, not the city, the county. But so many people were coming because there was revival going on, and it was amazing. And he said, he said that this, this pastor, since God was calling him to leave West Virginia amongst all this revival and go to a little church in Topeka, Kansas called Calvary Bible, where there was only 
15 to 20 people. And he did. And now you're thinking the story's going to get great because it's going to be like, wow, and it blew up to like 500. No, he was there four years, five years, six, seven, eight. My professor told me, he said, you know what? Even on Christmas and Easter, we'd be lucky to have 25 people. It never grew numerically. But he stayed there and he kept pouring in, believing God called him to this. It did not look good. You've got to picture what people are thinking around the circles in West Virginia. Why would he leave something so good to come to something like this? But my professor said, while he was my pastor, 15 out of the 20 of us went on to be full-time missionaries, including myself. You don't think there was an amazing kingdom impact? He went from investing in 1,800 to 15 to 20, but those 15 to 20 changed the world. I hate to say it, but sometimes faith, even in the Christian church, will make people look at you like you're goofy. But you've got to keep walking because every one of these Old Testament heroes, they took a chance on God amongst those who didn't believe and even amongst those who did believe. And they believed that faith was the way to go. And sometimes when you go against the grain, because we want God to do something big and powerful in our lives, sometimes going against the grain and being countercultural, it's as much about going against the grain of our own hearts and our own desires and plans for our lives as it is what people around us think we should be doing. Maybe God's asking you to do something tonight that you really don't want to do. But if you don't walk by faith, you're never, ever, ever going to see that fire. The fire doesn't come to people who sit and just do what they should be doing because that's the way they've always done it. The fire comes to people who walk by faith, even if that faith means standing in the same place. The first sermon I ever preached in Utah went something like this. Gideon and the army of 300 against thousands and thousands and thousands in Judges chapter 7. And it's the same sermon I preached the first time I preached in Nebraska when we're gathering just a couple people together and I'm saying God is going to do something in the city where he's going to save a bunch of people and if we are focused on him and we're trusting him and we make disciples of Jesus, and like he's going to do something huge. And I'll never be there to see that happened, but I can tell you some amazing stories of what happened. I'm telling you what, I'm, I'm standing in front of you in Salina, Kansas, and I'll say the exact same thing. That I believe God wants to save this city. I believe that he wants a prayer movement that starts with this people and this time that turns into a gospel preaching movement, that turns into a disciple making movement, that turns into a church planning movement, that turns into a revival. And I will go to my grave believing these things, whether I ever see them or not. Because I may not have the greatest faith in the world, but I got enough faith to know God's plan is much bigger than anything we see. And Jesus is worthy of faith. 
And if you take a step in his direction, he's going to meet you there and he's going to do something that will blow everyone away, not for your glory, but for his. What's he asking you to do tonight? I guarantee you, whatever it is, it is by faith. Let's pray.